and thank you for joining us on the Deeper Listening Podcast. My name is John Peru, and I'm here with my co-host, Justin Bruce. We want to help you discover new music from bands that you already know and bands that you don't. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the new theme music from the talented Thomas Wayne. We'll talk more about Get Into a Better Mood at the end of the podcast, but I would encourage everyone to check out his Bandcamp page at blackoutmakeout.bandcamp.com. It's going to be in the show notes. Uh, So thank you so much, Thomas. And uh, welcome to the episode. And if you've heard our prior seven episodes, you know we're not music experts, but we're music nerds, middle-aged dads who enjoy discovering new music, whether it's Pearl Jam, albums after the 90s, Funkadelic, Animal Collective, Fiona Apple, or St. Vincent. All musicians we've covered so far on the Deeper Listening Podcast. Today, we're going to hop into the Wayback Machine. And John, we're initially going to set the dial for 1973. And boy, are we excited. Uh, in this episode, we're going to dig into one of uh, Justin and my favorite bands, The Grateful Dead. We'll use the idea of deeper listening to track uh, the song Eyes of the World from its, from its inception in 1973 to the final version played just a month before Jerry's death in 1995. And this is, uh, as I've mentioned, my favorite dead tune. So it's going to be fun to do the deep dive. We'll talk about the song's origins, the lyrics, what do they mean? And we'll listen to how the tune changed over the years. Of course, the dead were an ever evolving, living, breathing organism, always in flux. So this would be a a meaty topic for Justin and John. We are bringing in backup. Our first guest, Jonathan Hart. Jonathan, thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to get into this. Uh, Listening to Grateful Dead is a thing that I've been known to do and uh, a lot. And so it was a pleasure to dig into a whole bunch of one of my favorite songs too. Yeah, and of course, everyone knows Jonathan from uh, the Broke Down pod on the Osiris Network. He has tipped me off to so many great deep jams that I just didn't know before I heard them on Broke Down pod. Uh, I met Jonathan online uh, doing some uh, Helping Friendly podcast stuff, gosh, like six or seven years ago at this point. We've bumped into each other at shows a time or two, so always good to hang out virtually and with an expert in our midst. Let's do it. Some deeper listening to Eyes of the World. Wait, there's an expert here? Somewhere. So one of us is going to know something, hopefully. When you combine the three of us together, I think that we qualify as, as an <laughs> expert. Wake up to find out you are the eyes of the world. So to dig in briefly to, uh, to the history of Eyes of the World, the song debuted in February of 1973 in Palo Alto. It was released on the album Wake of the Flood in 1973. That album came out in November. It was played uh, most often in its first year, but it remained in the rotation for the Grateful Dead for throughout their entire career. Uh, when Estimated Profit uh, debuted in 1977, the combination of Estimated uh, segueing into Eyes of the World, segueing into drums, became a really common occurrence. And that was uh, that was the case to the 80s. And then the song saw a little bit more flexibility into the 90s. Jonathan, if I saw you at a, a show and I said, Eyes of the World, hit me. What do you think? What are your gut reactions? Well, over time, it basically encompasses just about everything the Grateful Dead did. They, It's great songwriting. It's a good groove, great guitar solos, some good jamming, uh, particularly in the earlier years. 
and uh, you know, paired with it, to part of a classic pairing of the estimated eyes. Um, I heard J-Rad do eyes estimated one time very recently, and it was very clear why the dead didn't go with that order. <laughs> because uh, going from eyes into the uh, the weird time signature of estimated, it's not as easy as the other way around, apparently. But yeah, it, it has a bit of everything. And I would probably say, oh, listen to RFK 73. I would probably come around to that eventually because somehow only four months into the song's existence in fact uh like four months in one day since we're talking about six ten seventy three versus two nine seventy three uh they've they've mastered the thing and it was that, that's still my favorite version it is pretty wild how you can chart so many incredible versions so early into the song's existence. I want to actually go back a few years from the 1973 debut. Uh, this is some info that I didn't know before we decided to do this deeper listening project. So it's based on uh, Tighten Up. And, you know, we know the Tighten Up jam from Dancing in the Street, from Dark Star in the late 60s and the early 70s. But that Tighten Up Jam is based on an R&B song called Tighten Up from Archie Bell and the Drells, which was recorded in 1967, came out in 1968, and was number one on the R&B chart in 1968. Just in time, by the way, for Archie Bell uh, to be drafted and sent to Vietnam. Uh, I think he actually got uh, injured in Germany when he was stationed there. So he ended up coming, coming back home to the U.S., but pretty wild. And I want to play a little clip here of Tighten Up, because when I initially heard it, I thought, whoa, yeah, I see where the inspiration came from. I mean, the first time I heard it, I thought, did they rip off this music? But then I did a little deeper digging and it's not exactly the same chord change. It's a groove, though. It's a it's a it's a distinct, bouncy groove that they played with for a while. When we were talking about this in advance and through our emails, I sent you one from one of my favorites is uh, the uh, Kresge Plaza MIT show 5670. Uh, in the dancing in the streets, I played it on the podcast on the Broketown Pod not too long ago, and it's uh, it it's just got a great, great tighten up groove in it that that sounds like eyes, like it just if you don't know any better. And the first time I heard it, almost thirty years ago, I, I didn't know any better. I was like, oh my gosh, they're playing eyes, and how is that? What, you know, now I know. <laughs> right, I've, this it's nineteen seventy. What's happened? Learned uh, that it was something they were toying with a lot. Uh, it's an excellent version of it, though. Well, and speaking of things kind of organically evolving over time, turns out that the lyrics written by Robert S. Hunter were in existence for like four or five years before the song made its debut in 1973. He has said it's a song about compassion, as I understand it, his words, not mine, and being able to see things from someone else's point of view. Rolling Stone, when they were reviewing uh, Wake of the Flood in 1973, said the lyrics plumb new depths of dull-witted, inbred, blissed-out hippie dippiness, which 
seems a little harsh. Just a bit. I would imagine that the Rolling Stone review was a, was a, would, would have drawn about the same amount of attention for me that a Pitchfork review draws now. <laughs> like, you know, or a Rolling Stone review now, honestly. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Right. Fair Pitchfork gives Wake of the Flood a 3.2, and they recommend <laughs> that you throw the record in the garbage upon purchase. Uh, but I... <laughs> Nowadays, Pitchfork would probably rate it quite high because the... Uh, <laughs> The Grateful Dead resurgence among the uh, indie types is, is, well, it's really Mm -hmm. helping my guest list on my podcast, honestly. (laughs) Right. I mean, you were into the Grateful Dead before the Grateful Dead became hip again five or ten years ago. Helps to be old, I guess. Um, I I want to go back a little. I I think it's a miracle Hunter said anything about the song. He's widely known to be reluctant to say anything about what his songs mean, what they're about. Because the meaning is supposed to be in the listener's mind, and uh, it, whatever it means to you is what the song means. He, I, I've heard him say, and uh, I, I, that's more important than the meaning that he holds for himself. Uh, to me, I think the word compassion though is a really big part of it. Though compassion and perspective, recognizing that you're not the only one to walk on this earth, and we're all part of a bigger thing. And I think that I, I think that's sort of obvious in the song. And I think that's why a lot of, a lot of fans connect with it. Do you guys have any uh, lyrics or any of the verses that kind of jump out at you particularly? I mean, this has been my favorite dead song for, you know, practically my entire grateful dead fandom, which goes back to the early nineties, but I had never really, you know, leaned into the lyrics and really tried to grind out. What is it exactly about this? But for me, it is that idea of compassion, but it's almost tied more into like the nature of existence and like right outside the lazy gate of winter's summer home. Like, okay, winter has a summer home, a lazy gate. It's just kind of a, everything that is, is, and everything that will be, will be. So let's just chill, like wondering where the nut thatch winters. But wings a mile long just carried the bird away. You can wonder, but it's flying away. So it doesn't really matter if you want to wonder or not. (laughs) I love that line. And the other one that really strikes me, and it's something that I think that Robert Hunter is is just, he's just so good at doing. It's the, and the seeds that were silent all burst into bloom and decay. Like it tells an entire timeline of, you know, an entire timeline, an entire existence of events in a handful of words. You know, I remember my dad used to say, you know, if you're trying to if you're trying to really make a point with something, you know, say what you want to say in as few words as possible, you know, and, and the way that he does that. And just that one line is one of my favorite lines in the entire Grateful Dead lexicon. Yeah, It's among his more uh, Eastern kind of condensed lyrics. I, I actually it's funny you cited those. But I, I really love the, the, the couplet right before it. The, there comes a redeemer and he slowly too fades away. There follows behind him a wagon that's loaded with clay. And, you know, I, I, I don't even want to get into the meaning that that holds for me. I, I think that people should consider what it is. Um, it it It's beyond my words. I think it's already well written. So I don't think I could <laughs> over explain it. It's good stuff. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Although I, I, I will say that after like reading a little bit of the history, I mean, I guess uh, apparently, you know, the verses aren't exactly the same length and that presented a little bit of a musical challenge for Jerry. So the fact that he was able to enmesh this into this groove that he was able to create, it sounds a lot easier than uh, I believe it actually was in practice. 
I can tell you as somebody who has been playing guitar for a long time and as a dead fan, I, of course, I've sat down and tried to learn some Grateful Dead songs. Um, that one's tricky. It's not, it's not mm -hmm. like it's playing weird chords or a lot of unusual changes. It's that the progression is, it has some subtle shifts. I think now it's what had been, like I said, 30 years. I think now I pretty much have it, but, um, now I got to figure out how to sing it because, you know, it's somebody else's range. Well, and and do you have it in like a 73, we're taking our time, lollygagging down the street way? Or do you have it in like an 86, we could stay up all night way? Uh, somewhere down the <laughs> middle, I think, because, man, I, I got, I'm old. I got arthritic hands. So we, we go as fast as we can. Um, I have a buddy that I play with. And one of the things that he says, because we're we've learned like Mississippi half step and, you know, and a few other ones, and this is on the list, the short list of, of songs to learn. And one of the things that he has always stressed from, you know, is like with, this is one of those songs kind of like Terrapin station where it's like you, like you, the words have to be a part of you. Like you have to know them perfectly before you can even attempt to learn, you know, the, the music. So that was, which for me, remembering lyrics is not a strong suit of mine. So fortunately with this particular song, there's so many standout lines in it that this one I do have, but me trying to remember the order and everything happening in Terrapin Station is not as easy. <laughs> well, why don't we uh, jump into the first year of I's existence? What we're going to do here is uh, basically not track every year that they played I's because that was pretty much every year since 73. But we're, we're going to try to hit some of the big years and, and touch upon how not only the song evolved, but, you know, how the dead was evolving both personnel wise and maybe playing wise and, I figured this will be a good vehicle for uh, for a nice chat about the good old Grateful Dead. So we're going to go to February 15th, 1973 in Madison, Wisconsin. And this is only the second performance ever. This is the first performance with the Coda, which perhaps we'll talk about kind of uh, an extended almost pre-planned sort of progression at the end of Eyes. That was really how the song was jammed out for the most part, in its first couple of years of existence. But what I love the most about uh, the song, and particularly this early 73 version, is how it's equal parts Keith, Jerry, and Phil, uh, with some Bobby underneath. Uh, it's just so egalitarian, so equal in their contributions. And it's one of those exercises where you can pick one player, follow them through the entire jam, listen to it again, pick a different person, do the same thing. And if you're really on your game, you can try to track all of them at the same time. Yeah. It helps to have these uh, really great tapes that we have from this, this show. Um, I had this on tape in the nineties and we used to listen to it all the time. This is like, uh, you know, it was debuted on the ninth as, as I said before, and here we are at the second version. It's already 20 minutes and it's, it's a great ride. Uh, we used to listen to the show primarily for the Here Comes Sunshine, uh, which is also the second version ever and is highly recommended. But yeah, this one's it's interesting. takes a little bit to get organized into that coda. They haven't quite got the turn on st happening on stage that they get a little bit later, but it, it's good. I, I like the way it comes together. Yeah, you know, this one for me, I also had this tape in the probably you know early to mid-90s. This was one of the first tapes that I had, actually. Um, you know, I, I can remember getting a handful of, of tapes that I, I did blanks and postage for the first time with, you know, with the Grateful Dead. And I think that this was probably in the original batch wow. of, of tapes that I got. Um, so it was really fun to go through and, and revisit uh, this and, you know, listening to this 
now, I guess going back and doing this for the project, for me, it was like, when you meet a friend in adulthood and you see childhood photos of what they used to look like, right. Where you like, you know, it's them, you know, and there's, there's the, that's how you can see how the photos resemble them, but you can obviously see how much they've grown in the, in the process of, of, of life. And that's kind of how I felt listening to this version again, after being away from it for years, it was almost like being able to see eyes of the world in its childhood. And I mean, what a, what a fun ride it was. And it was a little bit unorganized, but it was something that, you know, it's, it seemed to me like, like Keith and Phil, especially haven't really figured out what they want to do with it yet. Um, but you really see it coming together. And the fact that they gave it a 20 minute treatment right away, I thought was pretty spectacular. It spoke to what it was going to become. Absolutely. And I, I, I want to say something really dumb, which is that we, you know, when we had this tape in the nineties, me and my friends, we used to, this is from uh, Dane County. We used to refer to it as Dank County. Um, I don't, it's, <laughs> uh, there you go. That's all. <laughs> released eyes of the world from the next year uh, we're going to go to oakland uh, june 8th 1974 uh, wall of sound there's a little extra keith and a little extra phil in this audience recording which is everything that i'm looking for in 1974 to my ears it sounds uh, like most audience recordings uh, were actually made inside Keith's piano in 1974, which just <laughs> I love to no end. Uh, shorter jams in between the verses as compared to the last version that we heard. Uh, but I mean, this just goes and goes and goes. And I, I love it. This is the, uh, the Day on the Green, which is one of a series of summer concerts that Bill Graham produced uh, originally in Golden Gate, and then he moved it out to Oakland. I covered this show actually back in episode 85, um, had Brad from the HF pod on with me, and uh, we had a good time. But it, is that where you a, guys were time traveling in yes, between so, shows? That was so yes. much fun to listen to. Just a plug for Broke Down Podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, yeah, so I was there. And I can tell you, it's a really great show. <laughs> and, and it's often overlooked, given that it's really the, the start of one of the band's best months. June 74 is unstoppable. And that's why they've released several of the shows from that, that month. Um, in fact, the, the next very next shows are some of the best shows ever. Uh, they're openly negotiating with aliens uh, on stage. And then uh, they're just a by the end of the month, they're obliterating multiverses. Uh, but this this is a monster gig. It's like 14 months after Eyes has debuted, and it's just beautifully silky smooth. Uh, Phil's solo is just graceful and just flows with ease. Um, 
sadly, they, they had to stop playing before China Doll due to tuning because uh, they are the Grateful Dead. Right? <laughs> it's always struck me, you know, is there any professional band in the history of music that has needed to tune their instruments more than the Grateful Dead? It seems like there's so many, you know, there's Trey with the ripcord and then there's the dead with tuning. It's it's funny because Trey never seems to tune on stage Ever. and Jerry spent, you know, 30 years doing it. It's I, I have no answer for this, uh, but I'll take it. And I have listened to the like 24 hour mix or whatever it is of the Grateful Dead tuning before. <laughs> well, and and it, it's funny because, you know, Jerry tunes and it's, you know, sure he they stop what they're doing and he does it. But what I love is how angry Bobby and Phil always get when it's time for them uh, to tune. <laughs> yeah, I mean, which is par for the course with those fellas. I'll, I, I do want to bring this up. It wasn't until uh, this listening project where I realized that so Eyes of the World into China Doll was very commonplace in its first couple years of existence. And that struck me as a philosophical statement. You know, Eyes of the World to me, seems to be about, yes, compassion, as we've talked about, just sort of the serenity of existence, everything uh, in its right place. Whereas, obviously, China Doll is a person meeting their maker saying, hey, what the heck? I was praying all day yesterday and you were nowhere to be found. Now you want to have a conversation. What gives? So that sort of yin yang really struck me with eyes and shine it all. And I didn't know if I was making this up in my head or if that's something that makes sense to you guys. Oh, it definitely makes sense to me. Both things. I think Um, it was originally a pairing. I mean, from the very first version, these, these went together and it, it was later that they, you know, started changing it out with Stella blue and other ballads. But I think that, philosophical juxtaposition is the word I want, uh, is very deliberate and obviously works. In 1975, the band goes on hiatus. They only played four shows, although the the couple that I've heard, which were more like radio promotion gigs, I mean, they are invigorated and motivated and they cook the shows that I've heard. Well, there's also the uh, the human snack where they come out and play like 
40 minutes of blues for Allah stuff. That's absolute madness. So blues for Allah, especially like the King Solomon marbles Mm -hmm. and the stronger than dirt and milk, the Turkey. I mean, when I first heard that it blew my mind and that is sort of, you know, connected to this, eyes of the world sort of bouncy rhythmic uh music so uh worth mentioning but yeah so that's what they were up to in 1975 jerry was spending all the money editing the great you know grateful dead the movie he did his best to bankrupt the band i think and uh for you know i don't i don't know if they ever actually ever actually went broke but i know they got close a few times and to your point everything that i've heard from 1975 is just bananas you know it's like it's it's so good the thing about this particular listening project for me that made this project difficult you know and i, I say difficult in quotations is that i couldn't just listen to eyes like that was not happening like i with almost every one of these there's a couple of them where i heard the eyes and i was like i've had enough and then moved on to the next um but most of these i either listened to the entire set or i went back and just listened to the entire show you're gonna have to tell us when we come to them uh which ones you couldn't listen to the rest of the show you just you're gonna have to I'll, be, I'll be happy to <laughs> um but the next the next one that we listened to was definitely uh not a part of that crowd so we 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 go into uh, 1976, uh, June 22nd, 1976 from Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. This is an unreleased version. And like, holy warp speed, Batman. The band comes out and just blows through this. It's a really kind of an odd version to me. They were being driven by forces that aren't human. And I, I think that, I think Jonathan, you said it the best when they were openly negotiating with aliens. You know, that's that's very, very well put. I think that's <laughs> the best, best description of, of that time period that I could think of. You know, this is one of those moments where they just plugged into the stream of music and let the music just take them where they, wherever it is that they might go. And they're just, you know, they're, they're a tight band. It's a wild ride. And it was just, I really enjoyed this version. I thought it was a lot of fun. So fast, though. I actually checked several sources to see if the one that had been sampled, you know, uh, set up for us to check out individually was sped up. And it it was not. I, I picked up my guitar and I was just playing along. And it's just unreal how with these kind of tempos it's no wonder that bob weir started to just play like one chord and let it feed back for three four songs um (laughs) this one is um it's also structured weird with kind of the um stronger than dirt bit in the intro that you know i don't know stronger than it's not really stronger than dirt it's like that you know it's it's the ice coda but it's in the intro and then uh we got like five and a half minutes before the first verse um but in spite of that long intro because of the speed the velocity i think is the right word to use here it's still only 12 minutes long um i'm a big fan of june 76 highly recommend the boxed set they put out last year was it last year or the year before this time it's an illusion uh if you can get that thing you should listen to that um this isn't on there though and i really dig this and i'm glad you guys picked it yeah it was really fun to listen to and gosh i mean you know we think of like mid 80s eyes as super fast but here we are in 76 and this one is hauling uh and jonathan you kind of mentioned this but i think it's worth emphasizing the fact that you know the 73 and 74 eyes usually had longer jams after the three verses uh, and they would go into that that coda uh that we have talked about whereas the coda is gone now that we're post hiatus. Uh, most of the jamming is in the intro. You mentioned it's five plus minutes till we get into the first verse. And it sounds like what happens, you know, after the verses from prior versions. And this version is really summed up for me uh, by, I think it's Jerry, uh, right after the second verse going, woo. Yeah, that's awesome. 
which you don't hear from old Jer very often. He was pumped. He was feeling it. Yeah, that's pretty great to hear. Our next one is uh, October 1st, 1977, Portland, Oregon, and it is also an unreleased version. And this one, um, I I, I swear it sounded like Bobby was hanging on to the edge of the merry-go-round on the last one. But here, they're they're a little tighter, a little more together. The intro is shorter, none of that Coda stuff, uh, just that bouncy groove played right to the hilt. Um, The drums after the eyes actually... Um, I, I could imagine the the coda, like the drummers, like hinting at the the rhythmic changes there. It might just be in my imagination. I don't believe it is. I heard it also. So after reading your notes, I went and listened to the drums and was like, oh, yeah, there it is. Oh, right on. OK. I guess it happened in 76 and especially 77. But, you know, once we started segueing from eyes into drums, it's almost like, you know, it's coming. And it almost feels uh, like Billy and Mickey, like, can't wait to get into drums. And that's like their angle. And, you know, you perhaps selfishly wish like, no, 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 keep playing eyes, keep playing eyes. And it's this really push pull that that you can sense in some of those mid uh, and late seventies versions, Jerry flying across the fretboard here. Everything is yeah, a little bit lighter and a fleet of foot versus that just 90 miles per hour down the freeway version we heard from the year prior. Donna sounds incredible. In my opinion, there's a little less Keith. I'm not sure if that's representative of the mix or, you know, that has more to do with his presence on stage and his balance in the band, which, as we know, kind of waned in the uh, 78 to early 79 time frame. This feels like Eyes is very, very healthy and is just in its almost like maturity and is just in its prime here in uh, 1977. I think that's about right. But uh, many people would argue that the band themselves were in their prime in 1977. So it certainly is another peak for the group. I agree. I mean, you know, it's, and there's, there's so many other bands where you can find just periods of, of mastery. And this is certainly one of them for, for the Grateful Dead. This was another show that was early on. I had this in the, in the collection. In fact, I had a buddy of mine who really just loved the Paramount run and, and had the whole thing. And we would listen to it as a complete piece of music. 
And uh, the guy that I met at boarding school, he was from Oregon, you know, so he, that was like his, his thing, right. It was, it was the home court. So I listened to this one a bunch. Right. Um, and I really liked the run too. And it's, you know, this particular one that we're listening to was my favorite show of this run. I think that most people would probably argue that the next night was, was the better of the show, but I hold, you know, those two shows really in the same general regard that I hope that I hold the Barton Hall show. I think they're just spectacular. I'm here for anybody who wants to stand up to the Barton Hall, uh, you know, enforcers right right so funny story about that if i could take a small digression i was at uh i was at work the other day and somebody uh i, I worked for barnes and noble and somebody brought um, a bunch of vinyl up to the front and uh i was talking to him about it and somehow we got on the on the subject of the of the grateful dead and it came out very quickly that this guy was at the uh, the barton hall show and his take on the Barton Hall show was that it was not the best. It was not the best show of that of that year. And he, in his words, it was not even in the top five of that year. So I was like, oh, I was like, let me let's exchange numbers. I like this guy. Yeah, I like give him my number too. <laughs> so, <laughs> Barton Hall is a psyop, anyways. So yeah, yeah we do right. exactly. With this particular show, um, the version that I listened to, I, I went back because I had kind of the Betty Board version of this when I listened to it back in the day so i looked that one up and that was the one that i went with on the on the re-listen app i love the betty boards um you know and this was something that really the whole show is just great start to finish you know this this version of eyes i really enjoyed bobby is doing some pretty cool stuff in the intro that's that's a little bit unusual um the whole show really never lets up and if you if you go and listen to it pay special attention to the music never stops because the the version of that on this show is just it's it's spectacular donna adds so much to this version of eyes of the world um you know and when she when she nails it i mean she really does add a lot to the music and this is this is an instance where that where that happens if only there were a grateful dead podcast where you could listen to an interview with donna that was in existence jonathan what episode was that uh donna jean was on episode 90 and uh, yeah, it was a real pleasure, honor, et cetera, to get to talk to her. And uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was stoked. It was dumbfounded even now trying to talk about it. That was a great, a great episode. It was a great interview. So, so I'm sure that that was just a thrill to do. It really was. Fans of her work, especially in this uh, kind of mid mid seventies sweet spot here. And before we move on to 1978, so we're going with Oregon. It's not Oregon. I feel like you guys are really committed. Did I do so that? I was kind of. I, I was kind of joking when I. Well, did I heard. That, I heard but, you say uh, it, so I, I just went with it. <laughs> okay. okay, so uh, the motion passes. It, it is now, now Oregon. officially Oregon. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe that'll be the third Sufjan Stevens states album, and we'll really finally get some clarity. Of, it'll uh, rhyme. It'll rhyme with his name. So therefore, there, Sufjan okay. Oregon. Okay, I'm done. I'm convinced. <laughs> Thank you. 
show that we're going to get into is from august 30th 1978 this is from red rocks um also an unreleased version and this is one of the handful of shows that's kind of played in the run-up to egypt um they play two shows at the magical majestic red rocks amphitheater in golden colorado they keep up the majesty and then go to uh east rutherford new jersey <laughs> which is um, it's practically it's, the same I mean, how did they even know it was a new venue and then and then they end up at the pyramids after that bobby had found a chorus pedal uh, by this point is sounding super glassy uh by the time by the time 78 rolls around I'm, I'm gonna step on you and note that they actually played two nights at red rocks in july then they went and recorded shakedown street with lowell george and then they came back and played two nights at Red Rocks in August. Oh, I didn't realize. And then they went out west. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, I, some, I somehow missed that. I knew that this was in the mix with, with, with Shakedown Street. Because I know that they didn't. They started it out with Lowell George, and then they weren't able to finish it with him. And somebody else had to come in and, and finish the album. So that time uh, working on that record, I think, had a, uh, a little bit to do with maybe some changes to the sound and some changes to the health. Mm-hmm. And a few other things, perhaps. So, <laughs> right, for sure, for sure. <laughs> well, and you can definitely like sort of pick up on some of those kind of subtle changes because hello, like disco hi hat. It is definitely 1978, and we are committed oh, yeah. to the disco groove. You know, three and a half minutes until we hit verse one, uh, and then we get a, a nice beefy four minute jam after the first verse. Silky Jerry's guitar sounds great. To my ears, though, it was like, oh, yeah, there are the drums. There are the drums. And I almost had to like sort of wade my way past the drums uh, to hear everything else. This is an interesting version because the jam after the second verse kind of gets quiet. It almost sounds like they're going to go into drums. But then they remember, oh, yeah, verse three. Got <laughs> to hit. Sometimes we live in your country and sometimes we visit your home. Uh, but then after verse three, uh, yeah, we're just cruising right on into drums uh, despite Jerry and Bobby trying to noodle for a minute or two. It's, it's like the chugle is very strong with this one and it's a disco chugle at that. Uh, yeah. At 78 is one of my favorite years, uh, but I'm really more early 78 before really honestly, before those recording sessions, I think it makes all the difference. If you listen to the July shows, those are legendary tapes and they're really great. There's still has that 78 bounce. The, the tempo's dialed back a bit from what we heard the couple years prior. But Jerry is just kind of head down, working long noodly runs between the verses. The drums pulse very steadily here. 
Keith's sound is almost more percussive. I mean, a piano is kind of a percussion instrument anyways, but it's really coming through in that way at on this show, on this tape that I listen to. It gets a little melodic at times, but it's hard to hear that in this tape. It, not my favorite for uh, 78, but I still listen to it like five times in a row. Well, you know, one of the things I found that was really interesting was that it was so nice to have a good recording from this show because, I mean, Red Rocks is a, is a tough place to tape. I mean, it's, it's, if it gets windy at Red Rocks, you're not hearing anything, you know, so to, ha- so to have a high quality tape from the show was, was really nice. That was one thing that stood out to me for sure. Nothing like a classic Red, Wa- Red Rocks phasing tape <laughs> exactly. where everything just kind of the sound is. Sound just it's a wash of sound back, <laughs> back across the microphone. And well, yeah. And then you couple that with the fact that it's like, is it the recording or is Keith really laying like that, that low kind of laying back that much? And it's just one of those chicken or egg things where when I'm listening to like late seventies, you know, the last year or two of Keith, it's just who, you know, who knows what, what came first. To May 4th, 1979, Hampton, Virginia. Now, this was released in 2014 live at Hampton Coliseum for Record Store Day. Uh, but I wanted to pick this version because it's the first Eyes with Brent. Uh, love Brent. I want all the twinkly tone. I uh, have Jonathan, as a matter of fact, to thank for, you know, helping to foster my love for Brent. I was on episode 73 of Broke Down Podcast last summer. So I listened to a lot of 79 and 80s dead. <laughs> like I kind of exclusively listened to that stretch of dead for a few months. And uh, yeah, I'm a big Brent stan. And to hear him sort of like be a factor in his very first Eyes of the World jam it's great. I'm proud of the guy, sort of in a weird way across, you know, the heavens. I'll go ahead and say you really put in the work for that episode. Uh, I barely had to do anything. It was, it was a lot of fun and uh, <laughs> came out great because you did so much listening. We could just talk endlessly for it. We could have gone on twice as long. Turns out the Grateful um, Dead are pretty good. You can pick any decade and there's there's meat there. Yeah, they're pretty all right. And I agree. I mean, just inject that Brent right into my ear holes. His tones don't disappoint. They're in the mix nicely the way Keith wasn't really in some of the latter years. They're gentle and less percussive, bell-like, kind of fit nicely between Bobby's squawk rhythm guitar and Jerry's high treble runs. And and those runs 
Jerry's bend into like more of a soaring orbit uh, than in the 78 show. The fresh energy, I think, is paying off. I do miss Donna's vocals. Brent is kind of subdued on the vocals on this one, uh, taking the high vox, but, you know, he's not really, you know, not cutting through, uh, which is fine. It's a good it's a good start, right? He's got a slow roll. Um, the tempo may be up a little bit from 78, but I did not sit and count it off. I figure you guys who do the deep listening probably did that. That's the, like, you count the BPM so nobody else has to, right? That's that's part of the slogan. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's in our intro, actually. You guys are the uh, the musicians here. So, you know, I just hear the 76 version and think, oh, that's fast. But that's sort of the extent of it. Right. I, I'm enough of a musician to know that that's BPM and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really like the uh, post eyes jam on this one. And, uh, and I have a couple thoughts about this release and Hampton itself. Hampton is my home court being a Virginia person. Um, I love seeing shows there and I have been doing that for nearly 30 years. In these days, it's like a no frills kind of arena as compared to what you get in a lot of the fancy places. So, you know, don't come. I mean, you guys are okay, but everybody else just stay home. But uh, it, it when I see it, I, mean, I drove by it just the other day and I got a little bit amped. I get endorphins just seeing the building. And it, this show was released, as you mentioned, for Record Store Day, and the cover art was uh, done by, it's a little little bit unusual for dead cover art, but it was done by a deadhead artist and musician named Kyle Field, who releases music under the name Little Wings, and he was on Broke Down Pod episode 57. Nice. That is very cool. I love Hampton Coliseum. Uh, I've had the pleasure yeah. of seeing, uh, of seeing. I think, the, actually the only band that I've seen at Hampton has been Fish, but I've seen them there a bunch. And uh, that's, it's a cool place. And to your point, every time, I mean, just seeing a picture of the place is, you know, is, is enough to get the endorphins going. And I will, I will say I'm with you guys a hundred percent. I will take all the Brent. I love Brent Medlin. I also, I, I was a hundred percent with you. I found myself definitely missing uh, Donna's vocals when, you know, in, in, in the chorus of the song, um, you know, and Brent's just really a refreshing take after, after the latter years of Keith, you know, and Keith, he had he had his own struggles, you know, towards the end of his of his time with the Grateful Dead. But Jerry really just kind of burns this whole thing to the ground. I mean, he's he's really he's he's really playing well. Uh, you know, at this point, I feel like that Brent's really trying to find his comfort level of like where he needs to fill in vocally. But he does that really quickly, and like everything else that's that's Brent related, like once he once once he he figures it out quickly, and then he and then he quickly becomes the master of it. Um, this particular version, I found it to be, you know, it's another blistering tempo, but it's highly danceable. But when they play it at a pace like this, to me, it's like it almost loses some of that like beautiful nuance that the that the song can have uh, when when it's slowed down a little bit. You know, some of the some of the extra frills that that, that the band members will put in get lost when it's paid when it's played at a, at a you know, at a pace that's this quick, uh, but it's still a really great version. And I also, I found an audience recording of this one that was done. Uh, I think it was like a front of board audience recording and man, it was so refreshing to, to hear that where the crowd just goes nuts and it's the entire show by like the crowd is so into what's happening here. And if you've seen a show at Hampton Coliseum, um, I got to see Fish's return at Hampton Coliseum and the, the yeah, you were there and uh, the hair is the hair yeah, is standing up on my arms thinking about how loud it was in that place when when the lights went down. And it was one of the you know, that particular moment was one of my easily top three musical moments of my entire life was being there, you know, when that happened and how just insane the place went. So hearing the crowd at Hampton Coliseum on a front of board tape 
listening to this, you know, brought back a lot of nostalgia for me, but it's really cool to listen to the Grateful Dead where you also hear the crowd and it reminds you of just how fun, you know, just how fun live music is. Yeah. I think it's uh, important for people to remember to choose the audience tapes periodically uh soundboards there are beautiful soundboards out there of course you mentioned the betty boards and they are all worth listening to as well but some of the audience tapes out there are just so good uh and even the ones that aren't that good sometimes you can they can just convey a completely different experience which is is worth having i agree and i, and I think that the people who recorded the grateful dead in the audience you know there are no better there are no better tapers than there were the, than the people that followed the grateful dead you know and i remember being uh, at actually at a Red Rocks widespread panic concert and I patched in, I had a little uh, mini disc recorder and, and they, one of the, the good tapers allowed me to patch in with them. But all those guys were talking about and hushed tones about, you know, one of the guys that was there used to tape at dead shows. So they were like watching what he was doing, you know, cause the, cause the masters <laughs> taped the dead. Not that we haven't heaped enough praise on Jonathan, but one of the things that listening to Broke Down Podcast for a few years has sort of helped me grow in as a fan is, yeah, to reach for those audience versions and you'll find that warmth. And yeah, sometimes you'll pull up an audience source and you'll think this sounds like absolute garbage. And then you just move on, you know, to the next of the 15 choices that exist for that date. The the other thing you can do, though, is sometimes you put that audience tape on. And you're like, ah, oh, I don't know. It doesn't sound that good. But then you listen to it and you find your your ears adjust and you actually can hear the sound field properly, particularly if you're playing it on your stereo. Sometimes they don't work on earbuds, but you play them on the stereo in the house and it, it can be transformative. It can be enveloping. Yeah, it's worth it's worth checking out. I mean, I've I've found the same thing to be true for like late 1.0 era fish because oh, I've sure. listened to a ton of those shows and you'll hear people say, oh, the summer 99, uh, summer 2000, all those outdoor sheds with the weather, uh, the, the tapes stink. They're actually phenomenal. And there are no tapes that I've heard from 99 or 2000 uh, that were like deal breakers for me. Far from it. My buddy Scott taped most of summer 99 and he made some good tapes. So shout out, <laughs> shout out to Scott. My buddy, my yeah, buddy. you know, and I find that especially to be true if you've been in the venue before. You don't need to have been at the show, but if you've been in the venue and you have a, a, a audience recording where there's a lot of audience going on, but you can picture your spot in the venue in your head while you're listening to it, it's a it's a transformative experience. It's it's really those those tapes are great. So I'll uh, I'll, I'll also throw in you know throw in my own my own two cents there that if you uh, you know if you're a fan of this music and you don't search out audience recordings, you really should. Nice. Well, hopefully all these audience recordings we're including here will inspire people to do that. One thing I do want to mention before we play a clip from here is that uh, there is like a double time hi-hat coming out of verse three. uh, And it sounds like Mickey and Billy are hellbent on going into drums. But Brent, who's, you know, the new kid on the block, he steps in and he really shines and he extends things right around the 1140 mark, which is much appreciated. So shout out to the new guy in his first eyes. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's in the mix. Kudos to Brent.
want to step forward. Gosh, we're going to jump uh, four years into the future. We're going to go back to California, to Berkeley, uh, to May of 1983, May the 13th. To my ears, it sounded like there was a bit of a change to the opening riff. Um, we've got a, a big, big jam after verse one, and then there's an even bigger jam after verse two. So this, you know, broad idea of, oh, eyes in the 80s, it was just fast and they didn't really explore it all that much. Well, that's not the case here. That's for sure. The interplay between Brent and Phil, of all folks, uh, around the 4.30 to 5.30 mark is phenomenal. And then we don't even get into verse three until about 14 and a half minutes into the song. Uh, many people probably know uh, Dick's Picks 6 from Hartford from 1983. This was the other long 1983 version. And for me, I was a big fan. I was kind of shocked at how much I loved this version when I was initially listening to all of these. Well, I mean, it's a good eyes, but it's weird to me that you went to 513.83 and we're not talking about the first ever Hell in a Bucket. So. <laughs> no, um, but seriously, uh, regarding the intro, um, I think it, we talked a little bit about this earlier. I think it's as much as a function of the way the transition did, or maybe in this case, didn't work on this particular night out of estimated. Um, there's uh, the... The intro that you're you're used to hearing is this like three chord riff. It's like an E major seven, D major seven, A, um, and and it's definitely in there. I just think it's swinging a little bit different, but not. I don't. I don't know. It's not super radical in my estimation. Um, but I, I do. I really do dig this version. Once it gets on its feet, it you know it's got a great groove and really chunky solo sections between the verses. It doesn't really break loose, but it's uh, it's really very enjoyable and uh, yeah, it got me moving. So this one for me wasn't wasn't one of the ones that I really that that really caught me the same way that some of the other ones did. But what I will say is that Phil really holds it down in this one. And he really comes through well in this particular recording. One of the things that about some of those front of board uh, audience recordings is the way that they capture the bass when they do it well, it really puts you in the audience of the, of the show. And this, this, this recording was one of the ones that did that for me. What do you guys think of like 82, 83 era dead, just to kind of take a big step back because, you know, I actually have this document on my phone that is titled Grateful Dead Timeline that helps me keep track of literally all the iterations of the band when Jerry was doing well, when Jerry was doing not so well. And 82 to 83, 
are earmarked on this document as not so well, a lot of extracurriculars, uh, but I can't really hear it, to be honest, on this version. It may lack a little bit of focus, but I love the fact that we're spending about four or five minutes in between the verses, at least kind of poking and prodding and trying to see where we can go. You know, we talked about 77 and 74 as being certain peaks. We're not really talking about those peaks happening right here, but it's still not bad Grateful Dead. I, I There are definitely people who will disagree with me. Uh, I saw somebody not too long ago writing about, you know, uh, 81 in the spring, it starts to go to and da, 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 and then it's just all speedy and choppy and no good until 89 or something. And uh, I think that's just, it's easy to overgeneralize on these things. I think that there are a couple different uh, time periods wherein the band has you know, varying levels of good nights and bad nights. And the balance gets a little askew at times, but then balances back even in the worst of eras. Uh, you know, they had, there were good things happening minus a couple shows here and there. I would echo that. I think that, you know, I think that there are some very, very good shows that are, that are from this time period. Uh, there's also a lot of, you know, very uh, chemically motivated shows that are happening in this time period. But some are, of those uh, that are tough to listen chemically to. motivated shows are not that tough to listen to. Like if you could, if you're, it's kind of like yeah. getting adjusted to that audience tape. Like uh, some days they had the formula right and they were dusted to the gills as it were. And just, but hanging on and really going forward and surviving right. uh, at least through the set. Um <laughs> and sometimes it's like, you know, just this set, maybe not the set, the other set, uh, maybe just the post drums, uh, <laughs> maybe the pre drums. And then it didn't, you know, I don't want to say hit and miss because that actually implies worse than it. I think it is, but it's you know, sometimes you do have to pick and choose. Yeah. I mean, I think that there could, you could draw comparisons with this, to, you know, just certain years of fish. Like I hear the even years with fish a lot of times, you know, kind of, kind of get a, kind of get a hard time. Uh, and that's kind of like where I put this period is almost like a, like an even year, you know, for, for fish where it's not, it's not bad music. I'm going to, I would go and listen to it. If I could take the time machine and go back and this, and this is where I landed fine, you know, so be it, so be it, I'm, I'm going, but I mean, you know, there's, there, there's some stuff that works, some stuff that doesn't, it's not like the, the 74 era stuff where everything is spectacular all the time, or like the, you know, the, the 93 or 95 fish where everything is spectacular all the time. You know, and you're picking, you know, you, you're diving into a, into, a, into a field of gems. Sometimes sort of your, your well-known missteps, uh, some of your not-so-hot moments kind of become the poster for particular eras. And that's going to be the case with this next eyes. I almost just chose it because it's the fastest eyes of the world that I've ever heard in my entire life. Although that 76 version from Upper Darby was was pretty darn quick, but I'm talking about April 21st, 1986 in Berkeley, unreleased. This is the Brent Freakout show. Uh, people aren't aware, you know, they play eyes, they go into drums, Brent never leaves the stage. Apparently Mickey and Billy looked a bit confused what's going on. Well, then Brent starts playing Maybe You Know, an impassioned version, to put it gently, uh, before Jerry rushes out back on stage a few minutes later and tosses him a life preserver in the form of going down the road feeling bad. And there is a great meme. Shout out to our Twitter pal, Marco Esquandolas, uh, for finding this for me today uh, that encapsulates all of this second set drama. But fastest eyes, uh, I think of all time. And uh, Jonathan, you mentioned that 76 version, like, oh, is the tape sped up? 
I've heard different versions of this, and I'm pretty sure that it's legit. It's just that quick. Yeah, no, it makes sense in 1986. Um, <laughs> right. They uh, they come to pretty much a dead stop after estimated, and Jerry just like somebody lights a firecracker under his ass, and um, they they go flying at like just incredibly high speed through his eyes. I don't have a lot to say about the eyes actually, other than that it's like ridiculously fast. Um, I just, I don't want to, I don't like to get down on Brent. I mean, poor guy. He just, he, he was having a bad night and I can just picture Billy or Mickey turning around and shouting at whatever roadie was in sight and said, get Jerry out here or, <laughs> you know, get the hook or something. Uh, but Jerry does come out and they wrap the set. Uh, and and I will say uh, Brent kicks a ton of ass on the Don't Ease Me In encore. So that's that's actually worth listening to. Yeah, you know, and, and with this, I mean, obviously the, the I mean the the Brent moment is is tough. I mean, the guy's obviously in a lot of pain, you know, and and he's obviously been into a lot of other things too before before he starts singing. When I look at this, I think that my initial estimation of this was that Jerry comes out and is like, "We've got to save the set," you know. And listening to it this time and kind of listening to that entire portion of this set, the impression that I got was much more that it was like a, almost like a mercy from Jerry to Brent. Like, Hey man, like I hear you. Everything's awful right now. There might be a better way to talk about it. So let's do going down the road, feeling bad, you know? So it was almost like a, Hey man, it's okay. You know what I mean? Like, it's okay that you, that you had this moment. Let's just do it this way. You know? So I almost saw it as like a strange mercy that he, uh, you know, than the way that he did that as opposed to him coming out and trying to save the show. It was more him trying to save Brent. And I think I had read that later in that set, they play Morning Dew and uh, yep. Jerry basically is like singing it directly to Brent. I wasn't there. I don't have the time machine handy at the moment, but even that thought uh, is just so, uh, so sweet. And, you know, really speaks to that, that brotherhood that they had going on where, yeah, even in one of Brent's, you know, harder moments, like, I got you, bro. It's, you know, we're going to do this. It'll be okay. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, and Jerry, Jerry in, in his best moments was just a really sweet guy, you know? So like, this is, I think that's a, that's a great kind of example of, you know, of when you hear some of those stories about some of the things that he would do, where it was like, oh, like this, this, this guy, this guy was all right. <laughs> this kid's going places. <laughs> Outside the 
let's head into uh, 1989. This is a version I had never heard before. We're talking June 21st at Shoreline uh, with Clarence Clemens, the saxophone player from Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Uh, right? Right. I'm not the yep. biggest boss fan. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm actually not either, but I do know Clarence Clemens. And uh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Dotting my I's and crossing my T's before I, you know, pro- proclaim this guy. But, you know, I, like I said before, the Branford eyes from spring 1990 at Nassau was that 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 is my like blueprint for eyes of the world. So I came at this with definitely, you know, not expectations per se, but I, I was excited to sort of hear a different take on saxophone player guests with Grateful Dead on eyes of the world. And it's it's great. He, it's slower than the mid eighties insanity that we just heard, uh, but it's definitely still got some oomph to it. I found that Clarence was often harmonizing kind of with the guitar versus Branford who would pick his spots in between Jerry's lines and Bobby's lines, like right around the six thirty mark. Clarence was really, really shining here. Uh, who knew? Turns out you can have a phenomenal jam in eyes of the world, you know, 10, 15 years after its inception, toss in a saxophone, and it's going to be amazing. Yeah, you know, it's uh, additional energy, right? And Summer 89 is is pretty good stuff overall. Uh, I want to start with that thought because um, it's easily overshadowed and reasonably so by the fall tour, uh, which is phenomenal. But they, they're playing well. The band is synced up. They're lively. It's a good tempo, but it's not, as you said, it's not the crazy stuff. It's a brisk and and Clarence Clemens is he's a, such a different player than Branford. Uh, they give him some room. He takes some like tasteful solos, but he also is, he's just playing uh, R and B kind of backup along with Jerry's solos. Maybe a little bit of like trading licks. It's, it's a really nice version. I haven't listened to it in a while, but it's really indicative of the peak that the band was uh, you know rolling into at that time. This is a really fun listen, um, you know, and I really actually liked saxophone, especially when that, you know, when it's played with the, with the Grateful Dead. And in general, I think that there's something to be said for the fact that like saxophone was so popular in popular music as like the add-in instrument for such a long time. And then just, I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was Kenny G or, or what it was that happened to the saxophone, but it just all of a sudden fell from prominence in popular music and just really doesn't show up a whole lot anymore. It's Kenny G. <laughs> <laughs> I thought so. I mean, you know. The Christmas album alone should have done it. So, you know, with this particular version, uh, Jerry's voice is completely shot. But I mean, he plays really well on the solos. I didn't listen to much else from the show. I'm not sure what the overall vibe from the show was like. I, I would like to go back and listen to the rest of the show because I also find, you know, 89 to be just chock full of just great material. It's a good show. They they open with Hideaway for the first time since 1971. Total random mm, pull. I don't know. Right. don't know why they did it, but I'm okay with it. Well, and Jonathan would probably know more about this than, than me, but you always hear about like July 4th, 1989, kind of really being a, a, a great show. Uh, so it is interesting to hear you say that, yeah, summer 89 was good, but then fall 89 got even better. That gives me some meat to dig into.
we'll hop a couple of years forward and go to 1991. R.I.P. Brent. Hello, Bruce Hornsby. Hello, Vince Wilnick. Uh, we're talking June 17th at Giants Stadium. This was released as Giants Stadium uh, 87, 89, 91, where they picked some selections. And they did pick this Eyes of the World because it's a rare show opener. We get some pretty legit jamming. I will say that this is also posted on the Grateful Dead's YouTube page. Crisp, great sounding video and audio, which folks should check out. Uh, we get a five-minute jam after the first verse. Lots of interplay between Bruce Hornsby and Vince Wellnick. Bruce is crushing it on the grand piano. He really shines from 3.30 to 4.30. And then we get another nice little five-minute jam after the second verse. So what more could you ask for? Yeah, you know, this show was played in uh, Giant Stadium is in the Red Rocks <laughs> right. of New Jersey, which is Majestic. beautiful East Rutherford. <laughs> Majestic even. Uh, East Rutherford. Listen, the Grateful Dead crushed East Rutherford. They played tons of great shows there. Uh, I really dig this one. The band sounds really polished. Uh, I think a lot of that has to do with, with Bruce Hornsby. I mean, it's he has such an easily identifiable sound that, you know, when you hear him, you know, to, to make the jump from Brent to this, it was just like immediately, as soon as the song started, I was like, oh, Bruce. You know, it's like he, you could pick him out so quickly. You know, Jerry's voice sounds so much better on this one than it does in the 89 show. This, for me, was a, was a solid version. I enjoyed it. This is uh, three days after my first Grateful Dead show, um, but I got the Dark Star. They did tease Dark Star all night long at this show, but <laughs> they didn't actually play it. So nice. uh, I, got, I got the Dark Star. Um, but this is the first Grateful Dead I saw. It's uh, two keyboard players, two guitars, two drummers, two, I mean, one Phil Lesh. They aired this in theaters a couple years ago, right before the release of the big box set and then the sampler set in which this eyes also appears. And it, it was just a really sweet experience, but this uh, flavor of grateful dead is, it really is good. I mean, Bruce really stimulated Jerry, Jerry, I think some people say, and I don't think they're entirely wrong that Jerry never fully recovered from losing Brent. And if you watch like the 89 videos, now there's thanks to the, uh, streams they've been running all past year there's a lot of them available jerry and brent really connected particularly in the last couple of years they were very connected on stage and it invigorated the music and and losing brent uh, was it was tough for the band and the fact that they made the business decision in 1990 after losing brent in august to go back on the road right away hire vince bring in bruce a few shows later just based on his schedule uh, and the fact that he didn't want the gig full time. It was a tough call on their part, but Bruce really delivered and helped ease that transition. And at this point where Bruce is, you know, full time for the year in 91, they sound so good. They sound so good. And it is, um, you know, arguably the first Grateful Dead show I ever saw, as I said, it was right before this was uh, probably objectively the best because it was just the best performing band that I was able to see. And it's really interesting to me, you know, as someone who never saw the Grateful Dead in the earlier, the mid nineties, how Vince Welnick and kind of his story and his evolution almost gets not swept under the rug, but it's just not all that highlighted. And I get the Grateful Dead is a big complicated machine, but you, I mean, go read Vince Wellnick's Wikipedia page if you don't know what I'm talking about. And like, he is kind of 
just as devastating of a character as as Brent was and you know as as Pigpen was and as Keith was I mean the legend of Grateful Dead keyboardists is I guess there for a reason but it was really nice to hear the interplay between Bruce and Vince here and you can kind of hear that pop a few times in between the verses in this version yeah Vince is really playing some nice and nice tasteful stuff but he is uh yielding to Bruce's lead largely um and of course the rest of the band uh but you know he's he's supporting and you know growing into the the role and we'll talk a little bit more about that growth I think here in a few minutes into uh, the last eyes of the world ever played so we're going to hop from 1991 in a giant stadium to july 6th 1995 in kansas city missouri this is an unreleased version i was a bit surprised as someone who admittedly has not listened to a ton of grateful dead kind of post 1990, certainly not post 1991. It's very interesting to me because a lot of folks who, you know, have seen the Grateful Dead in person that I talk to online who maybe, you know, also share a little bit of fish fandom. It's a lot of folks who saw a lot of shows in 93, 94 and 95. And I feel like, you know, I always hear people saying, oh, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. And I wonder how that kind of shakes shakes out here. But I was surprised at how great Jerry's vocals sound here in this uh, version. You know, here we are just a month and three days before his passing. Uh, his guitar playing is pretty sparse. You can hear Vince uh, in the high harmony in the chorus, and he sounds pretty good. And we do get into a little bit of a spacey jam uh, before the the third verse. I think I hear Bobby playing around like the 1330 mark. I was a little surprised as someone who hasn't listened to a ton of 95 Dead, uh, how much I was digging this musically. It's funny how solid Jerry's vocals could be in the last few years, given that the narrative doesn't really support that uh, but the fact is his ballad vocals uh, especially soared at times, but uh, there there were plenty of off nights too. But, you know, it's funny, you said Kansas City, and when I saw this written down when we first started, you know, working on this, I was like, Kansas City? Where the f- oh, Riverport. <laughs> right. So this is one of those kinds of places and things. I know the venue. I know that it's it's in Maryland Heights, Missouri. 
Kansas City. Where is that? It didn't mean anything to me. It's so weird how how we learn our geography sometimes. Um, <laughs> it's easy to make this story of this tour, this last tour, all about the things that kind of happened around the shows and the gate crashing. And like the night before this, uh, after the show, there was a, a big um, an accident where at a campground where the uh, the deck uh, on a building collapsed and bunch of people were hurt because everybody was crowding under it and onto it in the rain to, to get away from the rain or something. And the thing about that is, despite that storyline, is that this is there is some really good music. Um, I saw, you know, my final show like a week before this, and I really enjoyed that. And listening to this, I, I, I had a good time. I think that is Jerry that you're hearing in like the 12 to 14 minute mark. Cause mm-hmm. Bobby is back in there. If you listen, you'll hear Bobby's like scratchy rhythm guitar sound. Uh, and Jerry's just, he's got this weird, like soaring kind of tone that is God, it's kind of beautiful. Actually. It's really, <laughs> really lovely. And yeah, Vince sounds really good on here too. He's well integrated into the group. There's absolutely no need for another keyboard player at this point. And yeah, I, I actually enjoyed it. I, I agree. Jerry's uh, overall, his playing is not pronounced through the entire thing, but I, I really love that passage uh, that you, you cited and uh, yeah. My experience with it, at least, is that this tour kind of routinely gets dunked on. And I think that it's unfair. You know, I mean, I think that there's a lot of really, really good music that comes through here. And at this point, you know, they're essentially a large shed and stadium band, you know, so the sound is reflective of that. And because of that, there's a level of polish that goes along with that that does not exist in earlier Grateful Dead. And it adds a different element to, to the music. And I know that some people don't like that, but I think that part of the way that some of the, the, the instruments separate and things like that. I, I really, I really like a lot of the music that's from this tour and the tour before that. Um, so this particular show is three months and a day uh, after my first and only Grateful Dead show, which was in uh, Birmingham at the Birmingham Jeff- Jefferson Civic Center, which was a really odd set list. And I went to that show. Um, I guess I can, I guess I can say this uh, now and I won't <laughs> get in trouble. Um, but I went to that show. I told my parents that I was going to, uh, that I was going to the circus <laughs> with, uh, with my, with a couple of my friends. And it turns out that I was, um, <laughs> it's pretty close, but my parents think that I went and saw because Ringling brothers, Bar- Barnum and Bailey circus was in town at the same time, um, as the grateful dead, which I thought was, <laughs> was great. Um, but so I, I, I lied to my parents and told them that I was going to go see the circus and I went and saw a different circus. Hey, that's a, that's a cool little show you saw actually. Uh, you got here comes sunshine, and trucking, that would be something. And Uncle John's, Matilda. Yeah, that's cool, man. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, for for an only show, and there's some video clips that, that have survived of, of that. And, um, you know, it's, just, it's, it's really interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I was I was really... I didn't know much about what I was, what I was getting into. Um, I knew, uh, I knew much more of the scene than I did of the music at the time. So I wish that, I wish that at this point in time, I was, uh, it was right before I, I saw the Grateful Dead right before I saw Fish for the first time. And this was a time where I had moved away from listening to like mostly like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and things like that and started listening to music that was a little bit more meaningful, at least to me now. That was a great show for me to go see because I like I knew Truckin' and I knew some of the some of the songs that they played there. But I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed the fact that when people found out that it was my first show, 
that were around, like everybody was like, oh man, welcome. You know, like people were, were pumped that I was there for the first time. I've tried to carry that same enthusiasm when I, when I find out that people are at first shows of bands that I've seen a ton of times, you know, because that enthusiasm meant a lot to me as, you know, as a 16 year old kid going to, going to see this. Um, you know, so you, you hope to, you hope to pass that along. And that was one of the things that's so great about this kind of music is the community that it builds. And that was started for me with the Grateful Dead. And, you know, in, in April of 1995, kind of as I went there because I knew that there would be fun things to do in the parking lot. And it turned out to be a very, a very Sweet. magical experience for different reasons. Welcome to the Grateful Dead in 1995, John Prue. We're going to be doing this together for years and years and years. Yeah, man, we'll see you. We'll see you next spring. Unfortunately, little did we know. We'll see you in the summer. We'll see you in the fall. Right. Uh, and that is an interesting aspect of listening to this version of Eyes of the World is it's like obviously no one, you know, really knew it was, was going to happen. So it's, you know, it's just well, kind of a weird looking back in history with all these recordings with, uh, you know, things we know now that there was no way that you guys could have known back in the day. But yeah, an interesting and uh, respectable, I think, kind of final version here. looking in the dead base at this like last page of set lists and seeing the asterisk for final version on so many songs trickling up in the last like week and a half of shows. And it's uh, like you saw uh, at your first and only show, you saw the last Maggie's farm, which is something I loved to see and didn't, they didn't play it at RFK that year because I don't know, cause you got it, I guess it's yours now. That particular one was one of the songs that I recognized because nice. my dad used to used to blast Dylan, you know, in, in the house. And, you know, Maggie's Farm was what he loved that song, you know. So when the dead started playing, I was like, oh, this is cool. I know this one. <laughs> awesome. 
Awesome. Like I've mentioned before, big blind spot kind of after 90 or 91. Well, uh, Justin, I'll do this for you, but it's really mostly for your listeners. Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) Uh, No, uh, 90s dead. I mean, spring and summer 90 are strong. These are Brent's last tours and the band is, they're, they're riding a high from the 89 peak that we talked about and it carries right on through. God knows what would have happened if we, if we hadn't lost Brent. Um, But that fall, you know, brings in one and then a second new keyboardist and the energy changes a lot as we mentioned before but there's really some interesting music that's kind of born out of that energy after the initial jitters at like richfield where vince is on his own and even those have a couple interesting moments so the jitters are worked out they go to europe and that was the big thing that was the the tour they had booked that they decided not to cancel and there's some really cool stuff there uh, also worth noting, if you check out those shows, they play a couple of Bruce's songs, kind of onesie twosie kind of versions of Valley Road, Stander on the Mountain that are really neat uh, and highly recommended. Uh, so 91 then is, after that, is about as good as the post-Brent years get. I, I think I wrote down post-Jerry in my notes, just horrifying. Um, there's highlights from kind of almost every tour after that, but things do drop off. I will say, speaking of 91, uh, the Halloween 91 show is one particular high height, one of possibly the most psychedelic exploratory jams in the post-Brent era is during that Dark Star and then Ken Kesey comes out, or it's when Ken Kesey comes out, and behind him, they're playing just some absolutely music. As I say, there, there's highlights throughout the rest. Uh, Vinch detractors, you know, are likely to come after me. But aside from like Samba in the Rain or whatever, I, I think he really had gelled creatively behind the band or with the band by the end. Uh, but you know, as we know, we we kind of all but lost to Jerry, and you know. Well, here we are. That helps a lot. It gives me a lot of sort of directions to go. And I am, I mean, one of the great things, and we've talked about this on this podcast and elsewhere before, but uh, it's it's almost kind of a blessing to have blind spots because it's something to attack, something to sort of, all right, hey, I don't know a lot about the dead after 1990. Let me, let me listen to a lot of dead and see what I think about it. I, I think that's one of the cool things that this podcast can really do is we all have blind spots and the people who don't have blind spots are lying. (laughs) Right. Like we didn't know anything about Pearl jam after no code and after yield. uh, But that was our, our inaugural episode. And uh, you know, we may not love all six of those albums, but we'll talk you up about uh, every single album Pearl jam has released. And uh, it's, it's kind of fun to, to dig into that sort of stuff, at least, in my experience, hopefully a few people <laughs> on the other end of this are uh, enjoying the experience as well. Well, you know, a really fun moment for me, just, you know, in the, in the recording of this podcast so far was introducing Justin to Funkadelic because that was what? a band that for me, like I loved so much, you know, and then for Justin to, to, to for that to be a complete blind spot for him, <laughs> I was so excited for him. And it's just such a cool thing about music, right? It's like, if you are introducing, it's like the same thing, with having people being enthusiastic yeah. about that being my first dead show, you know, when, when somebody's about to turn you on to music that you haven't heard before and they're so excited about it, it's hard not to like it. Even if you're not even that into it, it's like you're into the fact that they're into it. 
And it's just such, it's such a cool thing. And I liked it and I'm into it. And uh, now my three-year-old Charlie, uh, who I don't believe is listening to this podcast, he will request in the car randomly, play standing ah. on the verge of getting it on. And it's a very proud moment for me as uh as a papa. Uh, well, here's another, you have six, you have succeeded. Let me know when he requests. Can you get to that? That's, that's my jam. Oh God. I love that song. Mm. So the way now, now that we're here, <laughs> I'm going to stick with this for a second because the way that they record the drums on, can you get to that is one of my absolute favorite things that I've heard in, in all of recorded music. I listen to it all the time and it's on, like I started running again and that's on, a running mix. And every time that I get to that, I'm so exhausted by the end of that song because I've started high stepping as I'm, you know, trying to run along to the, <laughs> to the, to the groove on that one. Well, and there's a reason that can you get to that is like the second most stream funkadelic song, you know, ever behind uh, maggot brain, I think. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, awesome. it's, it's a winner. It's well, speaking best. of, speaking of um, for our next episode, John, we haven't talked about this too much, but I had St. Vincent, covered Metallica. I still haven't listened to it. I guess a lot of indie artists covered Metallica. Uh, but I said, oh, because we've tossed the idea around about listening to some Metallica, because that's another huge blind spot for me. I just wasn't that cool of a kid in the early 90s to put on the Metallica t-shirt. I don't know if my parents would have allowed that. But I was thinking maybe we could dive into some early Metallica. Like I know they have 10 studio albums. Maybe we cover the first five from the eighties through the early nineties. Does that sound all right? That sounds like covering the first four seasons of Dexter. Like the first four seasons of Dexter were perfect. And then Dexter (laughs) fell off a cliff after the, after the first four seasons. Just run it right up through justice. And then you're good. Absolutely. Um, We can mention honorable mention the black album. I will tell you the guys who were listening to Metallica when I was in middle school and whatnot, we weren't that cool. <laughs> I was one of but, them. Uh, Definitely not. Yeah. I, w- I was listening to it too. And uh, yeah, no, we weren't that cool, but Metallica was. Absolutely. I'll shout out my, my longest friend, my longest and best friend. His name's Dan Weinberg. And uh, he was in New Jersey recently visiting me. And he was the one that turned me on to Metallica. He's a little bit older than me. And let me tell you, there are no two, there's not, not a larger conglomerate of nerds than Dan Weinberg and I listening to Metallica. So it was not the cool kids, but man, Metallica sure was cool. Uh, we were playing Dungeons and Dragons while we listened oh. to it. So um, obviously we were the coolest kids in town. Of course. Nobody knew it. <laughs> of course. All right. So if I listen as a 40 year old grown man, I'm perhaps not going to be beat up is what you guys are telling that's me. That's what I'm telling you. And man, you like, you'll to, be all right. You like to listen to music while you're riding your bike in the desert and man, you're going to get some workouts in. This is going to be fun for you. Actually, I'll set some new PRs going uh, literally up and over mountains. Thanks to eighties uh, era Metallica. Jonathan, thanks so much for being on. Uh, I, I do want to give you uh, a plug to your band camp page. I know it is JM Hart. I mean, you are now like a legit musician releasing records and you've got an album, I believe, that's in the works. Anything you want to you want to promote? There's a single. I think there might still be some versions of the clear one-sided thing, but uh, yeah, there's a regular to single out there that you can pick up. Of course, you can buy it all digitally too. And there is an album coming uh, announcement soon. Uh, you know, it's done. I'm just getting some details, dotting some eyes, crossing T's, and making sure the all the right words are on the cover. And uh, yeah, that'll be out real soon. And yeah, J M Hart bandcamp.com breaking news on uh, on your new album coming out that's uh th- thank you for uh for, for saying that to the audience here 
it has been fun to watch you make that progression, you know, from music talker to music maker. And I almost feel like that's a little bit of inspiration because for years and years, I was a, a podcast consumer. And eventually you think, you know, what, what would it be like to, to make a little something instead of just listening? Shout out to the artists out there, the creators like yourself who are actually uh, doing the darn thing. It's great. Thank you. Yeah, that is awesome. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I've loved so much about doing this is that it did, it does definitely get the creative juices flowing. And I think that it's something that for me, it kind of got me over some of the jitters about putting myself out there. And, you know, I'm not, not nearly as talented as, uh, as, as others, but I actually started playing music again as a, as a result of, of a direct result of doing the podcast. Cause it was like, this would be fun. And a person cool. who I am now very good friends with um, listened to our Pearl Jam episode and called me out of the blue. And we had never really talked before, but we kind of ran in the same circles. And he was like, let's talk more about this. And oh, by the way, I heard you play guitar. I'm coming over with my guitar. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And he's, he's a very, he's a very talented musician and he's been patient enough to, to, to kind of walk me through a few things. Um, one thing I would like to say also, before we wrap this up, this is not known by really anybody, uh, anybody except for a very small group of people, but my daughter was actually named after a Grateful Dead song. So uh, my last name is Prue. My daughter's name is Stella. And, uh, one thing that is, uh, so that was, you know, that was a very intentional thing when we were coming up with a, with a name for, for my daughter. Um, my wife has no idea and there's no chance. <laughs> I, um, my eldest is, uh, Althea Eliza. So I got, Oh, very, covered. very well done. Very well done. Don't I have to say you are the second, uh, Grateful Dead fan that I have known who has a daughter named Stella and their wife is not in on is <laughs> not in on it. So props to That's you. That's impressive. Well, and, and, and the great thing is, is that, is that there's no chance that she's going to listen to this. So she's still never going to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm in the same boat with my chick. So that's oh, amazing. That's, that's phenomenal. Shout out to Stella Prue. Stella Prue. So great. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was such a pleasure uh, to, to go through this and, and such a joy to go through this music that has meant so much to, uh, to me throughout my life. And I know, I know the two of you as well. I mean, this is, you know, talking about, talking about the Grateful Dead. I, I can't think of a better way to spend a, to spend a couple hours on a, on a Thursday night. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast and please feel free to leave a review. You can also find us on Twitter at listen deeper or on instagram at deeper underscore listening underscore podcast we'd love to know what you think and what you like and what you didn't uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next time as always to the incredible thomas wing for our theme music and our new updated version of the theme music uh, get into a better mood indeed check out his bandcamp page at blackoutmakeout.bandcamp.com there's going to be a link in the show notes thanks so much guys we'll talk to you next time thank you